Welcome to the Republican Professor. This afternoon, we have such an incredibly special guest. I cannot believe I'm talking to the one and only Scott Wenig. Dr. Scott Wenig, thank you for being here. Well, Lucas, I don't know about all the superlatives, but thanks for inviting me. This is just a real treat for me. So glad to interact with you, friend, and, and our, our friends who will listen in on this later on. Yeah. I'm so glad that I had this excuse to catch up with you as well. That's really why I started the podcast is just so I could have an excuse to hang out with Scott for a while. <laughs> well, that's one of the great things about technology, isn't it? It allows us yeah. to connect over lots of lots of big distances. So It is. Yeah. There's a lot of crappy things about technology, but that's definitely a good thing. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, it's kind of a double-edged sword. Yeah. Like so many things. Well, uh, it's special for me, everyone listening, because in the future, because Dr. Scott Wenig here was my church history professor back in the dark ages when I went to Denver Seminary. That's back when they required two semesters. Now, kids, yes, we did. And it, and it, and it was a great down, time. Kids. Yeah, settle down, kids, for story time. This is when the MDiv program required two whole semesters of church history. I was not an MDiv student. I was an MA academic student, but I had the time, and I was very interested in, I took church history as an undergrad uh, at Wayland Baptist University in Hawaii. Okay. Um. And that was one of my favorite courses there in Wayland Baptist University, taught by Dr. David Howell. Okay. Uh, there in the Hawaii campus, we met in IAEA. I don't think the campus is there anymore. I think they moved it, but IAEA overlooks Aloha Stadium, overlooking Pearl Harbor. And um, so I had a wonderful time taking church history, and it, it was only 10 weeks. It was 2,000 years in 10 weeks. Wow. Yeah. You're, you're going at a pretty fast high level when you're doing it in 10 weeks. Mm -hmm. So when I got to Denver Seminary and I, I, they said, you only have to, for an MA, you only have to take one semester. I said, get out of here. I already had the one semester. I want the double doozy. Yeah. So then I saw that Dr. Scott Wenig was teaching it uh, in the fall of 2001. I I believe sounds right. Probably right. And uh, it was early in medieval church history. That's correct. I yeah. I signed up for that. And then I had Bruce Shelley, some guy named Bruce Shelley. I've never heard of him before. <laughs> some guy named Bruce Shelley. I think he was, I think he just had his bachelor's degree or something like that. <laughs> you were giving him uh, like a little adjunct job or something, but Bruce Shelley, no, anybody who knows, uh, church history in plain language. Bruce Shelley wrote that book. Uh, I had Bruce Shelley for my uh, modern and contemporary church history course, which is in the spring. Well, then, you Lucas, you sat under the that the feet of the master, and I don't mean myself. I mean Bruce Shelley. So mm -hmm. yeah, Bruce Bruce was uh, one of my church history professors when I went through Denver Seminary, and then eventually, long story short, he became a father figure a mentor, and then a, a good friend. And uh, just I'll do a little promo on Bruce. 
back in 1978, word publishers commissioned him to write an accessible church history survey for the average layperson. And so he eventually took a year and wrote the first edition of Church History in Plain Language, which came out, I think, in late 1980. And it has since undergone four editions, and it now is out in its fifth edition, which really? uh, Bruce's son, Marshall, who's our doctor of ministry director here, uh, edited over the last year. And the wow. fifth edition is just fantastic. Uh, they've incorporated a lot of new material. They've incorporated little sidebar vignettes of various people in church history who were significant for all kinds of reasons. Uh, and the fifth, fifth edition's just terrific. We're, we're all just exceptionally excited to be able to use this now in our church history class here. So, Oh, I'm glad you're using it. Yeah. That's the story with my, th this was special for me, a, a special story. When I was active duty in the Navy, uh, what about the time I was going to go to Wayland, uh, finishing up at Wayland Baptist there on Hawaii on Oahu. Um, I had, uh, there was a Christian bookstore in Ward Center. So anybody who knows Hawaii and Honolulu will know Ward Center. There was a Logos Christian bookstore there. I think it might still be there. I don't know, but I was, uh, I went there quite often and I was there one day and I saw this book, Church History in Plain Language by Bruce Shelley. And I picked it up so fast. I bought that book. So I, I barely could get the check written and I wrote a check for it. That's how long ago it was in the 90s. Wow. Yeah. And um, every time I see that book in a used bookstore, I buy it. And that's only been once. <laughs> <laughs> but but uh there is a used bookstore here in la mirada across the street from biola university it just closed it just kills me that this is true that it just closed oh, it just shut down yeah that's but, a loss to the community yeah. yes absolutely and i was there i think last year and i saw a copy a, an older copy of bruce shelley's church history and plan language for quite a steal i thought and i said okay i'm gonna grab it I'm going to grab it. It was a white cover. I don't know uh, what edition that was. Mine was a brown cover. Quite an attractive volume. But it's such a it was such a joy to study church history. And, uh, the summer before that, we had had a living tour of first century Christianity and after yes, uh, as we traveled through uh, Greece and and Turkey. Um and I'm not allowed to say my wife's uh, name on here, but uh, she was there and she has very fond memories of, of that trip with you as well and all the people there. And uh, I just remember uh, sitting in that bus for long periods of time. Oh, yeah. Laughing so hard that I couldn't see through the tears just at different things we were experiencing and processing. And also, I think, sheer exhaustion. <laughs> Well, I, I've told my wife about that trip and how you kept us going by your great wit and entertaining us along the way. But when I'm teaching church history now, when we talk about the journeys of Paul, I always reference that trip. And I talk about the fact that we rode a bus from the southern coast of what is now Turkey. For them, it was Asia, up yeah. into the hinterlands there. And it mm -hmm. took us hours by bus 
to get to Konya and oh, yes. some of those other places, which were major cities that Paul and Barnabas went to. And mm. I always tell students, I said, it took us hours to get up there by air conditioned bus and they had to hike up there or ride mules up there. And they didn't have all the amenities or the safety or just the, the practical aspects of traveling that we have today. And they did that for one reason. They wanted to go tell the lost people in, you know, Pisidian Antioch and I, Iconia and Lystra and Derby, all about Jesus. And they did that out of the love of Christ. So it's it's hard to it's I mean, I, I was there with you and I, I remember that and I still have a hard time uh, with what you I mean, it's just amazing what you just said that it just the the level of commitment that they had do you think that they were just tougher people back then no i i i think that there have always been tough people in every age every generation every background and culture the the sense i get though was that they clearly if you take you know the book of Acts seriously, which I do as a historian and as a Christian, you know, and they're in the beginning of Acts 13, the Holy Spirit comes to the church there at Syrian Antioch and says, set apart Barnabas and Saul for me for the work to which I've called them. And they responded eagerly. And so, I mean, I, th I think the great thing is they were really sensitive to the Holy Spirit and they go on this trip, you know, and they take John Mark with them and they go to Cyprus and then they end up up there in what is now Turkey, but for them, it was Asia. And I think that they recognized, yeah, this was going to be a hard slog, but God's with us and God's called us to this. And as I like to joke, and, and there's humor in this, but there's also truth, everywhere they went, there was a riot and a revival. And I think that that's the offense of the gospel, and that's the redemption of the gospel, that people are put off by, but other people respond to it, and that Paul was the classic evangelist. So I just think that, you know, they knew in a sense what they were in for. And they, you know, eventually after they finished that first missionary journey, they end up back in Syrian Antioch and they report to the church all the great things that God had done through them, through these Gentiles or these, you know, seekers up there in, in Asia. So, yeah, I mean, I, I think they were tough. I, I don't think I could do that. You might be able to. I mean, you're a military veteran. Uh, but I think in every age, every time, every place, yeah, there are tough people who do that. I mean, you can just, you know, look at, you know, the history of, of missions throughout the centuries, and you see a lot of very, very dedicated people willing to sacrifice family and fame and fortune to go share the love of Jesus with people. It's inspiring. It is. I, I loved the way that you and Bruce Shelley taught the church history courses you had you were uh slightly different in personality and but but the similarity i guess what I, maybe it's it the material lends itself to it is that you used story the power of story and example to teach the material and in fact uh i recall the short papers that you had us do and and that bruce had us do bruce had us do a, a short paper i can't remember who i did mine on 
but he wanted us to do a biographical uh, sketch of somebody. And I learned so much doing that. Uh, now, Scott, you're a fascinating individual for me because you teach at seminary, you teach preaching. I do. Uh, you teach at Denver Seminary and you have a PhD in history. Right. From the University of Colorado at uh, Boulder. Boulder. Right. Yeah. And you, so you, you bring the academic background of a professionally trained historian to the task of preaching, teaching others how to pe preach the word of God to a contemporary audience. Um, that sounds like a wonderful background for that. Uh, is that normal to have that background for a preaching professor? Because you have a, a lot of question. That's a great question, Lucas. And I, I think that the, the stock answer and the true answer is no, it's not. So I think my circumstance here is both providentially arranged by the Lord and also his grace to me, just in terms of my uh, framework for, for teaching here at Denver Seminary and the experience I've had. Uh, Bruce Shelley, as I just mentioned, was my mentor and colleague and friend. And I met Bruce when I was uh, finishing up my undergrad uh, degree, uh, some friends of mine um, who were seminary students at the time said, well, we've got to take you over to Denver Seminary and you got to sit down on a class with this guy, Dr. Bruce Shelley, because we know you love history and we think you're going to like him. And I, I literally still can remember that day. And it, it was like 47 wow. years ago. And I was this undergrad and I went and sat in the back and Bruce was teaching American church history. And I mean, he was just amazing. He was dynamic and he was funny and he was pointed, and he had great content, and he was just alive, and part of it was what you said. He told stories, and so he just kept you going, and Bruce and I later reflected on that, and I, I remember sitting in the back of the class and thinking, I want to do what this guy does, and it, it worked out providentially that I got to do that, and I've been able to do that, but Along the way, a few years after that, when I started seminary, Haddon Robinson became the president of Denver Seminary, and Haddon was the prince of the pulpit. He's the guy that wrote the classic work on biblical preaching, and Haddon became a mentor as well, and eventually, when I started grad school at CU in Boulder, after I finished my MDiv here at Denver Seminary, Haddon recruited me to help coach sermons, and uh, I kind of started to do that, and really, that was kind of my entree point onto the faculty at Denver Seminary. I served as an adjunct for nine years. Most of that, not all of it, but most of it was in homiletics and what we used to call Christian education. And a little bit of it was church history. But when I came on the faculty back in 1994, I was brought on, basically, if I, if I could put it this way, I was brought on as kind of a generalist. I used to call myself in the early years kind of a utility man faculty member because I taught church history and I was doing Christian education and I was doing preaching. And then that just kind of eventually gained momentum and kind of, you know, went, went its own way. And as I've looked back at all of this now, I just rise up and call the Lord blessed because my bosses here, my deans who I've worked for have been so gracious to let me generalize to my heart's content. Cause I like to joke, you know, I think by nature and default, I'm a historian, but I love preaching 
I love talking about church world and pastoral ministry. I get to help out in our doctor ministries program and do a little bit of leadership stuff there. And I've just been hugely blessed because I think as, as I say, and I joke about this, but there's truth. I'm a pastor who's made a career out of masquerading as a seminary professor. And I've just been able to kind of leverage what pastors do here. And pastors are generalists. They have to be because they're dealing with all kinds of people in all kinds of contexts for a long, long period of time. And so I think you just have to kind of generalize. And I've been able to generalize here at Denver Seminary, and I'm deeply, deeply grateful to the Lord for that. Uh, it sounds wonderful. Now, anybody who knows what it's like to get a PhD will know that at least for the dissertation, you have to specialize in something. You can't just be a generalist for the dissertation. There's no general dissertation church history. Uh, so what was that like for you? Um, what did you do your dissertation on and, and what did you specialize in? Yeah, you're absolutely right. And maybe some of our listeners to this podcast are either in the dissertation phase or in their grad school and they're thinking about doing a dissertation. And that's great. You know, I want to encourage and commend them. Uh, when I was in grad school at CU in Boulder, we realized it wasn't the smartest people who graduated. It was it was the people who had the most perseverance. So those who endure to the end will graduate. Well, I was very, very, very fortunate when I started my PhD program at CU. I accidentally stumbled onto the best possible advisor anybody could get, who was Dr. Dr. Marjorie McIntosh. And Marjorie's still alive. She's retired now. But Marjorie's uh, area of expertise was late medieval and early modern England. And I wanted to do something initially on the Puritans. So that was her area. And early on, when I met her, you know, I shared with her, hey, you know, I'd like to work with you and I want to do something on Puritanism. <laughs> Marjorie's brilliant. And I mean that. And she's just a great teacher. And she was she was the best advisor. But she told me, she goes, well, I don't really know much about religious history. You know, what I want to do is send you out to Stanford to work with this guy, Paul, Paul Seaver. And she goes, they got a ton of money. I can get you in out there and get you a free ride. And I told her, I said, well, Marjorie, my family's here. My friends are here. My church is here. You know, I, I, I want to study with you. And I'll never forget, she, she got kind of this steely-eyed look, you know, and she goes, well, okay, if we're going to do this, we're going to do it right. And what I didn't realize was that she meant what she said, we're going to do it right. Well, my research field was Tudor Stuart England, which runs from technically, if you want to really use dates in history, from 1485 up through like 1703. So it's a, it's a fairly long period of time but it's broken down by two families who controlled the throne of England from the late 15th on up through the 16th century. And that was the Tudors. And then they were succeeded by their cousins, the Stuarts. So I focused my research in the Tudor area, specifically in the reign of Elizabeth I. She came to the throne in November of 1558 and ruled clear until she died in 1603. And uh, a guy that uh, I was just casually acquainted with, who was teaching at Utah State at the time, Norm Jones, Norm was an expert in the Tudor era, and he was also an expert in what we might call Tudor church history. And we had a meeting with a bunch of us graduate students to kind of get to know Norm. And along the way in that meeting, 
Marjorie introduced me to him and said, well, Scott's finished his coursework. He's finished his exams. We're trying to kind of narrow down, you know, his dissertation topic. And Norm said, well, I think you ought to do something related to the first generation of Elizabethan bishops because nobody's really done much with them. And so what happened was via that suggestion, I decided that I wanted to look at the pastoral ministry and the ecclesiastical vision of four individuals who were all part of what we call the Marian exile. They had come up in the English church during the latter part of Henry's reign, and then they all became very prominent in Edward's reign. And when Edward died in 1553, the crown went to his half-sister Mary. Well, Mary was the daughter of Catherine of Aragon. She was Henry and Catherine's first child, and she was a fervent Roman Catholic. And so she switched the country from being Protestant back to being Catholic, put it back underneath the auspices of papal supremacy. And she and her Archbishop of Canterbury, her cousin, Reginald Pole, they reinstituted intense counter-reformation on England. And so there were a number of people who were gentry and clergy who had the financial means or the contacts. They were able to escape her reign and go to the continent in what became known as the Marian exile. Mary eventually dies in November of 1558. And then her half-sister, Elizabeth, comes to the throne. And Elizabeth's a Protestant. So everybody knows England's going to be Protestant again. The question is, is what, what's, what's the... Elizabethan Protestant church going to look like? Well, all the Marian exiles had been places in Europe like Frankfurt and Geneva and Strasbourg um, and even, you know, um, some other places. Well, they all kind of got radicalized by this intense fervent Protestantism on the continent. And they came back to England and they wanted to create even more than what Edward had done during his reign in terms of a, a really, really reformed church. Well, Elizabeth had to depose all the bishops that she inherited from Mary because they were all Catholics. So she basically retired them or, you know, got them out of the, this, this church that needs an archbishop at York and an archbishop at Canterbury. And she's got all these dioceses and these have to be populated by people of competence who agree with her and her reign and where she wants to go religiously. So I picked four men. John Jewell, James Pilkington, Edwin Sands, and Richard Cox. They were all Marian exiles. They had all had contacts before her reign. They overlapped a little bit when they were in Europe. And then they all came back and they were appointed to be different or bishops of different dioceses by Elizabeth. So in terms of what you said, you've got to really focus and narrow down your research. My research on them was who were they as individuals? When they came back, what kind of a church did they want to create? What was their ecclesiastical vision? Not the queen's, but theirs. And then um, how did they interact with the crown? And they eventually came into conflict, conflict with Elizabeth because they wanted to pu push the church much, much more reformed than she did. And because she's the queen, they eventually found themselves in kind of a difficult situation and had to back off from their vision. But then what I did was I looked at three of them generically in their diocese, Pilkington up north in Durham, Sands out west in the Diocese of Worcester, Jewel down south in the Diocese of Salisbury. And I kind of compared and contrasted how they did implementing Protestant thought and Protestant reform 
in their diocese. And then my last chapter, I devoted totally and singularly to Richard Cox, who was the Bishop of Ely. And he was the Bishop there for 20 years from 1559 to 1579. And the reason I devoted so much time to him was because we have all the church court records from his time as Bishop. Now, here was the challenge of my dissertation. I was going to ask you where you got the the sources. How does what the sources yeah, well, look like? Were these emails well, for between them and 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 Elizabeth? <laughs> or oh, I guess oh, that was before it, e- faxes. If were, yeah, if it were only so. Well, there's a lot of source material, kind of you you might say at the generic level in terms of uh, a lot of letters that had been written that were they were they were written in Latin, but eventually somebody translated them in the 19th century in these volumes called the Parker Society. And Norm Jones had told me, he says, you've just got a ton of research material right in front of you in the Parker Society volumes. Like John Jewell's works are like four volumes. And a lot of it's very detailed, intense theology. He got is that a volume. volume that is accessible in the library? or no, you... oh, Yeah, any okay. good theological library is going to have the Parker Society volumes. Okay. And here in Denver, um, the Isle of Theological Seminary Library, Taylor Library, is a great library, and they had them all. So I had access to that. But then when I was studying Cox, um, I went to England for about two months back in the summer of 1991, And I did research in Cambridge, a little bit in Oxford, and then some down in London. But my primary area was in Cambridge. And the reason why is because their library had all these church court records, which I eventually got put on. And I'm really dating myself here technologically. I had all these put on microfilm, and then I had them sent home with me to Denver. So when I got back, I was going through these church court records. Now, here's what was challenging about them. Church court records meant that the bishop came and he set up his church court in a particular area and all the the parishes would would come in terms of their clergy and different laity would come to the bishop's court. And the bishop is there holding court and he's deciding on all these different cases. Well, he's got a clerk and his clerk is sitting there writing out the case in manuscript, except it's all in Latin because. Latin was the language of the church. So, I mean, they're doing everything in English, but the clerk's recording everything in Latin. So these records were manuscript, meaning they're handwritten and they're in Latin. Now, when, when I first looked at these, and this is where Marjorie just became huge. Did, huge you, speak, did you speak English or did you have to learn English for this? Well, I, I took Latin as part of my graduate program. So, I mean, I, I knew Latin, but when you're, you're doing manuscript, it, the, you have to learn the clerk's hand. And that was very challenging for me. But the good thing was, and this is what Marjorie told me, she said, okay, it's going to take you a long time, a number of weeks, but what you're going to do is eventually you will learn the formula of the clerk, that these church court records had a formula, a date, the parish, the bishop's name, the case that was brought to the bishop whether that person was found innocent or guilty, if they were found guilty, what the the penance was. Well, it took me a long time, a number of weeks, but eventually I learned the formula. And once you learn the formula, then you know on every record what you're looking for, and you can begin to tabulate your data. So what what I was looking for, this is what I was looking for. I'm a Protestant, and I'm, Cox is this Protestant, and so I'm looking 
did he find a bunch of Catholics in his diocese that he had to put in jail for being Catholic in a Protestant regime? And there were very, very few Catholics. They were either underground or they had left his diocese. But I started, I mean, I just started to tabulate all the cases. There was a ton of adultery, a ton of fornication, a ton of theft. Uh, and, and then the generic category that I, I think that the bishop and the clerk used for crimes or whatever that they didn't know how else to define was evil living. And that eventually became the biggest category. And what you discover is from 1559 really? to, wow. yeah, to 1579 in the Diocese of Ely in England, there was a lot of evil living going on. Did you ever get a well, sense of what that was? To, what's that? I mean, did you ever get a sense of what that was? Was it well, like... It, it, it was just some kind of a violation of what a Christian society was designed to look like. And this takes us back in church history to the, to the realm of Charlemagne in the ninth century. Charlemagne's actually the architect of a Christian society. He had this great vision. I'm the king. I, I rule this huge area, and I want to make everybody in my area Christian. And so he used the clergy to do that. Now, it's more complicated than I could say on this podcast, but he was the architect of the total Christian society that developed out in all the centuries after him. Well, when my guys come back to England following the Marian exile, they, they believe in a Christian society. They just want it to be Protestant. So what they're trying to do is impose from the top down Protestant theology, Protestant thinking, Protestant practice on these dioceses that for oh, probably eight or 900 years had been Roman Catholic. So it's a religious revolution from the top down. Now, some of my guys like Pilkington up north, he ran into huge opposition from Catholics. In fact, there was a revolt in his diocese in 1569. Some Catholic lords up there basically took over the diocese and Pilkington and his dean of his cathedral, Durham Cathedral, and I've been there, it's beautiful. It's the most beautiful human structure I've ever seen. They had to flee their own cathedral, William Whittingham, because these Catholics were coming in to take over. Sands out in the West encounters some Catholic opposition. Jewell didn't seem to have much Catholic opposition. So my conclusion in my study was, it depended on the area where the bishop was as to how much entrenched Roman Catholicism they encountered, how much entrenched opposition to Protestant thought and practice they encountered. Now, I love my guys. I love my research field. Um, I still read, you know, English church history from the 16th on into the 17th century, because that's, that's the nerd in me coming out. So I have a scholarly nerd side, and that's my scholarly nerd side. I, I, I just find the tutors fascinating. And, and they're kind of a, you know, a publishing industry un, unto themselves. And, and my wife and I were talking about this one time, and, and she said, well, the reason why is because it was so dramatic. It's, it's like this soap opera at, at, you know, an ecclesiastical political stage. There's always so much going on in the Tudor era. Uh, the, the, the book that, that I would recommend to anybody that really wants a good feel for the uh, English Reformation itself during the Tudor era would be a book called Heretics and Believers. Heretics and Believers. Yeah. 
and the publisher is I off the off the top of my head I don't remember but it's backwoods by backwoods Bible press something uh, like that no I don't think so yeah okay it, right. I, yeah I I want to I mean it's it's a very reputable reputable English publisher so yeah oh okay so that's that's my nerd side that's that's the, awesome re, that was the research focus of the of the PhD program uh you know that was my dissertation and I and I loved it I mean it was you know, I mean, it was to, to me it, and difficult and challenging. And, you know, you did a you did a dissertation. I did. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, but, I, but it was, I was great. Yeah, that's that's cool. You had to do it the right way. How long did you have to be in Cambridge? Well, I was there. Yeah. For almost two months. Like I said, I spent a week down in London at the British uh, Library there, you know, looking at some records uh, from jewel and sands and then yeah. i went to oxford for a couple of days just did a little bit in the bodleian there but uh yeah most of my time uh that i was in england was in cambridge so how, how did how did you like cambridge as a town how did you well, find if you're going to do academic research and you just want to be a scholar and i mean that in the best sense of the word i can't think of a better place on planet earth than cambridge england to do that Really, better than yeah, Oxford? And, well, I I mean I I've been to Oxford I think two or three times now, and all of every time I've been to Oxford I've had a good time, but it seems to me from what other friends have told me, um, my experience and their experience tells us that Cambridge is the better place, just in terms of accessibility and friendliness, and you know, the research. I mean, one of the great things about studying in England is this, and I always tell students this, when, when you go to England, they're insistent on having tea twice a day and lunch and everything shuts down. I mean, you, you leave the reading rooms because they close up and you go down to the Cambridge University Library and have tea. I mean, and it's a great time to interact with other scholars and other people. And, you know, you just get to know people. And I mean, one of the great blessings of my time in Cambridge was um, I, and this was serendipitous, but the great Old Testament scholar, Walter Bergerman was there the same time I was. And I ran into him, recognized him from a picture I had seen, because I've used his commentaries and we became friends. And oh, it was just, it was just a great time. And I, I used to just pick his brain, Walter, what do you do with this narrative? How do you interpret this Psalm, whatever else? And yeah, he was, he was just great. So that was a completely serendipitous blessing of my time in, in, in Cambridge. I remember you telling me that story. I remember you telling me he cussed a lot. Oh <laughs> yeah. I mean, he, yeah, I'm this little evangelical American Christian and yeah, his, his language shocked me to be honest. So, why, yeah. why do you think he uh, cussed a lot? Does he just have anger problems or is just how he grew up or, or that that's a great question. Uh, I, I don't really know other than I think, maybe Walter thought that being earthy was being close to the old Testament or something, you know? Uh, so. Okay. Yeah. I think some people per, uh, feel like it's more authentic or something. Yeah. I don't know. Well, he's a very authentic person. Believe me. Yeah. Is he? Okay. Yeah. Is he a good scholar? You think he's a great scholar. Yeah. I mean, I have his testimony, his book on, you know, testimony advocacy dispute or whatever it's called. Yeah. Old Testament theology. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he, he's going to lean theologically, you know, yeah, way yeah. more left than you or I would. Oh yeah. Um, yeah. But having said that, I mean, in terms of his commentaries, 
he he's always got good insights and good things to say so wow there's so much detail that you seem to have a command on in this field uh, does the detail energize you how do you do you feel like you have a good command how long does it take you to get a good command of the big picture so you could start filling in details or do you fill in details and the big picture comes later i don't know how it works for you but yeah that's like you have it seems like you have a, a very good command of the big picture and then i don't know how you remember all the details but i guess um do you ever find yourself looking up details again oh oh yeah Oh, well, okay. let, let me come back to that. I'll answer your first question, which I think is a great question. And then I'll come back to the detail piece. My, my own experience tells me that you've got to get the facts down first before you can get the interpretations down. And so as you're teaching material, you've got to make sure that you're doing the best job you can as a scholar and a teacher to communicate to your students and your audience, the flow of events in a clear, accurate, and factual manner. And then after you do that for a period of time, you can begin to nuance the interpretation from your perspective as to what was going on and why. But then the, the great thing about teaching church history at a place like Denver Seminary is you've got to get the big picture down eventually because you only have, I mean, we used to have two semesters. Now we just have one. But I think over time, as you teach it, you start to get kind of the big flow and you, and you start to get a pretty good feel for that. Now, here, here's the thing, and this is true of everybody who teaches. Everybody who teaches has things that they really love that they want to teach. So I was talking with some friends this last Friday, and they were asking me about church history. And I said, well, when we went from two semesters to one, now you really have to be selective. And I said, that pains me because there's so much in church history I love that I want to teach. But I said, for example, I only get to spend three weeks on the medieval era. And that was a thousand years. And I happen to be a Protestant who really likes the medieval era. There's so much good stuff that went on during the Middle Ages. I mean, there were some downsides too, but that's true of all the, all the time. But I had to be selective. But I said, I spend 90 minutes talking about the English Reformation because I like it. It's my research field. It's fun to me. It's a story. Well, other people would probably skip over the English Reformation and go on to something else. So you, you have to be selective, but you eventually, I think over time, get the big picture. Now, this gets back to the details. I'm going to quote one of my colleagues, a friend of yours, Dr. Doug Grotheis. Doug's really, really smart, and he's a few years younger than me. So when he said this, I took it as a sign of encouragement. But he said, well, we're all getting older. And as we get older, he said, what I'm finding is, and he's using the computer metaphor, he said, I can go to the folder okay, but it's taking me a lot longer to pull out the right file out of the folder. And that's a metaphor for the way our brains work. In other words, as we get older, it's just taking us longer to recall the data, to recall the facts. So to answer your question, yes, I still look things up. And I always review my PowerPoints. I always review my notes way, way before I go to class. Because when I get into class, I don't want to be stumbling and fumbling around. I want to be clear. I want to be concise. 
I want it to flow. I want to, you know, make sure I save time for question and answer because that's a lot of times where real learning and education takes place. But I always review things. And, and as I'm getting older, I realize I need to do that more because yeah, you just get older. You're, you're losing capacity. We just need to tell the truth about that. Yeah, I know that you still preach um, and you obviously teach people how to preach. Do you use church history examples and anecdotes in every sermon that you preach? Great question. No, but I'm beginning to use them more uh, as time goes on. L let me dial back 20 years ago. 20 years ago, most people would not connect with a church history illustration unless it was something really juicy or great or something like that. So I didn't use them very much. But what I've noticed over the last 10 years is, and I don't know why, other than maybe people, because of the uprootedness of our own culture now, people are looking for things to root them. And I think that's especially true of Christian people in churches. So I think there's much more openness now to anecdotes and stories from church history being part of a sermon. So for example, this Sunday, I'm preaching at a small church over here just east of us on Broadway, and I'm preaching out of Luke's Gospel, chapter 12, and I'm doing the parable of the rich fool. But my sermon introduction has to do with Roman history. And then further on in the sermon, I do an illustration about the early church, their commitment to feeding the poor. And I give an anecdote uh, uh, about a fourth century Roman emperor who hated Christians, Julian the Apostate. And the reason he hated Christians is he said, I hate those stupid Christians. They not only feed their own poor, they feed ours too. And those illustrations I'm finding now, if they're clear and they're well told, they really connect. So I'm using more of them uh, as I go along and I will continue to do that. So from now on, if I can, if I can find a good church history illustration that will work, I'll shoehorn it into a sermon, you know, as much as I can. That's awesome. Is there a place in the local church for teaching church history? Yeah, and I think that's going to grow. Uh, Marshall Shelley, who I mentioned earlier, who's Bruce Shelley's son, Marshall and his wife attend a church to the south of us here, Valley View Christian. Susan's uh, their children's pastor. So Marshall started this last fall. He taught an eight-week church history overview, and he got rave reviews, and they said, we want you to come back and do it again this spring. So he went back, and he did it again this spring and had even more people in the church take it this time around, the second time around. So I think what we're finding is people are very interested in the history of the church and if you can give it to them in a package that, you know, they can get in eight, 10, 10 weeks in kind of a Sunday school class setting, that they're excited about that. Yeah, because Marshall told me, he said, he's just gotten great response. He's, and he said, it's not just older people. He said he's had some younger people come too, and they loved it. So, yeah, wow. I think there's a place for that. Well, that's exciting for me. I love that. You, you have this historical training that, uh, you know, is... I'm, I'm envious of the level of historical training you have, but what do you think about the historical training as the most helpful for you as you go about your work teaching, preaching, and 
um, stuff like that? That's a great question. And how do we cultivate that in people? Like, yeah, it, in my opinion, maybe the real value of being a historian or looking at things historically is you want to try to detach from the context that you're studying or reading to get to what people really valued. So for example, we look at the history of the church and there's a lot of great things that happened, but there are also some real dark sides. And you have to ask the question, well, why did these things happen? Why did Christian people act in such, you know, poor, dysfunctional, or even violent ways sometimes? And I think one of the things history teaches us is to postpone judgment in order to try to empathize with the people that you're studying or reading and say, all right, why did they act this way? Why did they choose these? behaviors? Why did they, you know, why were they so virulent in their language or even their behavior? And it gets to the issue of values. So one, one of the things I always like to point out to students is the greatest churchman of the 12th century was Bernard of Clairvaux, and he was a Cistercian monk. And the Cistercians were a revitalized order that had built on the old Benedictine order. Well, Bernard was brilliant. He was a great preacher. He was a hymn writer. He wrote that song, Jesus, the very thought of thee. He started over 60 Cistercian monasteries on the continent and in England during the course of his lifetime. Dante and everybody else in the medieval era thought so highly of Bernard that in the Divine Comedy, Dante placed Bernard of Clairvaux up close to the Blessed Trinity. As, as an example of somebody that was really holy, really godly, close to God. And everybody thought of Bernard that way. But here's what I tell students. I say, here's the flip side of all that. Bernard preached the Second Crusade. We have copies of his sermons, and I read them in class. And he's very polemical, and he calls on the Knights of Europe to rise up and go to the Holy Land and slaughter Muslims. And you're thinking, what? How could this guy love Jesus and do this? Well, you have to take him in his own historical, cultural context, and what was going on during the era of crusading, and why people felt so strongly about that. I'm not justifying him. I'm trying to understand him. So I think the benefit of history is it tries to teach us to postpone judgment in order to understand others. So this, this, in my opinion, has a lot of relevance for the way we talk about issues in the church and even the way we ought to talk about issues in the public square of controversy and disagreement. And in other words, I'm of the opinion that civilized, good-hearted, good-natured people can talk about some very controversial issues in a way that's polite and civil and respectful and without, you know, basically, you know, anathematizing people on the other side of the equation. Do you think that we're in a particularly dangerous moment here in church history with social media and the polarization we see with, you know, Twitter and just the low attention spans, the grade inflation? It seems like 
like you just mentioned, uh, Denver Seminary is is going down to one class in church history. It seems like standards are becoming um, more flabby to me. I, I don't know. I mean, I I really pushed myself really hard in, in school, and I, I was lucky to find uh, professors that pushed me just as hard back. And, uh, you know, it seems like as I'm a professor, I, I just feel like I push into my students and there's, there's less, uh, I feel like I'm pushing into flab and there's nothing there. And then they just, they just drop or they complain or something. I, I don't, it's, it, it, are we living in a, uh, an anti-intellectual time? That's a great question. I'm not sure I'm competent or knowledgeable enough to paint a picture of the overall era we're in. I, I would say this, the era that you and I are currently part of is an era of great change and it's very rapid. I liken it to the end of the 15th and the beginning of the 16th century in Europe. Uh, at the end of the 15th century in Europe, the old medieval consensus was breaking down at a variety of levels. And part of it had to do with the Renaissance, part of it had to do with the rise of humanism, part of it had to do with the age of discovery, part of it had to do with the ossification of the Roman Catholic Church at that point, part of it had to do with the corruption of the papacy. There were just all kinds of things going on. And so as the 15th century transitioned into the 16th century, it was an era of very rapid revolutionary change, not the least of which was the advent of the Reformation. Reformation wasn't the only thing that changed Europe, but it was a huge part of it. We're in a similar era right now. I think over the last 20 years, we've seen all kinds of things develop globally and locally, which are changing the way we view life and we do life. Now you mentioned technology like social media and Twitter. That's a fact of the way we do life now. But I think almost all of us realize that social media and its expressions, whether it's Facebook or Twitter or something else, don't allow for much reflection. They don't allow for dialogue very much. They don't allow for listening to an extended argument, and therefore they short circuit good discussion and, in my opinion, good learning. Now, I'm not saying you know people should get off Twitter or get off social media. I'm not on a, either one. I kind of live on Facebook vicariously through my wife just to keep up with our friends. But I think you're right, Lucas. I, I think that some of these technological changes have begun to undercut what traditionally we relied on in education to shape and form the way people thought. And I think that that's a matter of concern. I mean, I try to keep up on kind of what's going on and not just popular culture, but in terms of what I would call civilizational development. And one of the guys that I pay close attention to is the political commentator, Ian Bremer. And Bremer's really, really, really smart. He runs this group called the Eurasian Group. And he has a new book that just came out now called The Power of Crisis. And I've watched a couple of YouTube videos that he did to promo his book. And the third part of his book that he talks about 
is he talks about what he calls the advent and the threat of artificial intelligence. And, and Ian Bremmer says that artificial intelligence could be one of the two or three major threats we're dealing with in the next 20 years. That makes me rise up and pay attention. And I'm thinking, okay, what does it mean for me as a Christian, as a pastor, as a professor, in the areas that I have responsibility for to engage a rapidly changing culture that contains elements like artificial intelligence. What does that mean for me? And so I have to work hard to try to think through what are the implications for me theologically and pastorally as we enter into what I think is becoming a brave new world. And so I want to be careful how I think about that. I want to be careful how I reflect upon that. And I want to be careful what I preach and teach on. But my own feeling is this, that we're entering into an era where we as Christians are going to really have to put on our best thinking caps, biblically, theologically, and historically, to help us navigate a world that is in rapid flux and will create some things that we're going to have to address pretty bluntly. I mean, we're already dealing with yeah. that now with a lot of the sexual revolution stuff and, you know, just the, the political turmoil in our culture. But I think there, there's even greater things coming down the road from what I can tell. So that's, that's yeah, my it'll be interesting. I know people are people and there's a human, I believe there is such a thing as human nature. Yes, amen. There's an there essence, yeah. There's an essence to people, and uh, so it's in that sense. But there, it sometimes it's uh, it's hard to see how 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 long a particularly hard time will go in in stretching something <laughs> unnaturally somewhere before it kind of springs back uh, to nature. Um, but one of the things I'm worried about is. Um, uh paperless society uh yeah. yeah i i there's this there i i don't i pay close attention to fads and what's popular and i i get really worried about certain fads like paperless society i just ordered john edward carnell's book on christian orthodoxy from ebay yeah uh, i tried to get it before that one bookstore closed down and uh got got the book it, it's a used book it's obviously in used it's a good pretty good condition and in the the uh book had the library stamp on it and it said discarded yeah and I, I i know from talking to libraries my one of my phd uh research methods was archival methods so i had to talk i had to do a lot of work in the archives um, yeah at claremont colleges i i grew to appreciate the archives and and library stuff and i was just puzzled it was a christian college i i was so puzzled at why that book would be discarded a book defending christian orthodoxy by from a giant like J edward john carnell who had been professor of philosophy and apologetics at, at fuller he had been president of fuller for a time right uh, Yes. He uh, 
he was a giant of his area two phds one from harvard and i know the answer and the answer was it wasn't checked out very often yeah <laughs> so so the in curiosity of a of a cohort or two or three would deprive that library of future for future i i, I just think of that so short-sighted um and i know that there's space constraints and all that stuff but i would I, I just worry that it's so easy for us to use things like space constraints to uh, that's just one example i mean because I, I walk around campuses and i see a lot of space for me i see you know if you because i served on submarines <laughs> Right. Yes. You Navy. understand the lack I, of space. I know you have space. You have, yeah. it's, it's a decision that you, you, you make. It's a, that's correct. You know, at Pepperdine, I used to just stare at the tennis courts and they were empty 99% of the time. That's a lot of space in Malibu and it's all, it's highly, uh, you know, expensive. And I understand, you know, place like Malibu, but there, you know, other places, I just worry that these little trends of being paperless and, and stuff becoming too, uh, I, first of all, I don't know what the online thing does to the mind when you're reading. I'm not sure how that changes things. I, I have a feeling a physical book, something you hold in your hand, something, something you can, you know, feel, you can feel the weight yeah. of, the work that went into i can't even re raise this book it's so big you know right. it you can feel the weight of of the work into this and and uh it's tactile i think you remember things better that way when you take notes like that my students insist on taking notes on computers and i you know all that is dependent on electricity it's dependent on technology bugs you know viruses yes. uh who knows it just kind of scares me that there might be libraries that don't have basic stuff because they threw it away in favor of you know whatever else so i'm um i don't know what do you think about that as a historian do you have any concerns about that trends well, well we, we we're we're living in a civilization now that is moving rapidly, as you noted already, away from what we would call hard copies of anything to everything becoming digitized. And I think there are concerns that go along with a change like that. I mean, you, you mentioned human nature and you and I would agree, there are certain aspects of human nature that never change. And I always phrase it this way, we're created in the image of God, which means that we have this capacity or capacities to do these unbelievably great things. But we're also these very fallen creatures. And I'll quote one of my favorite theologians and preachers, Fleming Rutledge, who wrote this incredible book on the crucifixion about six years ago. And in that book, she says, we're all a lot worse off than we think we are. And she's correct. I think history demonstrates that. So as we move away from paper, away from print, towards digitization of everything, what are the upsides of that? Well, it can save space. It's accessible. You know, we can take it with us anywhere. The downside of that is 
what happens if, yeah, you, you have a power outage and you can't access stuff? Then what do you do? Or does that influence the way our brains operate? And I think the, the answer to that is, is pretty obvious. Yeah, the more we do digital stuff, it affects the way our brains operate. I think neuroscientists now are coming to the conclusion that, you know, all, all this stuff is impacting the way we think. So that raises concerns. And I mean, I'm a, I'm a professor and a pastor, and I'm concerned. So I'm, I'm going to just try to communicate to people, hey, you want to make sure, yeah, it's okay to be on social media. You don't want to live on it. It's okay to watch videos. That's okay. But you don't want to give yourself to that. You want to read. You want to think. You want to study. You want to engage. That, that That's what's really going to make your life full and whole. So. Well, we we travel through uh, California. We see all those trees that were just up in flames. That's oh, a lot of paper. That's a if lot. They, of paper. If those forests were managed differently, that's a lot of paper because those trees. Uh, it's it's sad for me to even say what I'm saying, but um, I, I think I just love the the historical mindset, and I love that when I asked you when we were preparing for this um, our last meeting. I asked you, how do you keep sane? <laughs> and I, I loved your answer. You said, the way I keep sane is I have a historical perspective of things. And you don't seem to have a lot of anxiety. Is that true? Would you say that's true? Well, I'm pretty sanguine and optimistic by nature. Okay. Uh, I, I think you have just more though, serotonin in your brain, or is that is that <laughs> a result of, well, of I, I, uh, nurture like or nature? Say, well, I, I, I'm three quarters German and one quarter Irish, and I've always joked, but I think there's truth. The Irish is the redemptive part of me, because when you're Irish, you cry when you're in pain and you, you, you laugh at your pain. You do both. So, uh, I, but I, I mean, that's the outgoing side of my personality, because all my German relatives were more introverted and scholarly, and I'm kind of extroverted. So I think I'm pretty optimistic and sanguine by nature. I, I share a number of concerns, though that maybe five or six years ago, I, I, I wouldn't have been too concerned about, but I am now. Um, I, once again, I mean, I try to keep up with people like Ian Bremmer and David Brooks and some of these really, really good cultural analyst thinkers. And they're, they're beginning to articulate things that I'm concerned about. And one of the things I have to guard against is this, as you get older, it's easy to get pessimistic. And I don't think that that's helpful to anybody. In other words, you know, I'm hoping that the Lord will continue to give me a number more years of preaching and teaching and working with people. But I, I don't want to be the grumpy old man over in the corner. I, I don't want to do that. Having said that, I want to be realistic about what are the threats or the challenges or the pressures that we're facing. And I want to be realistic about that. So. Oh, that's a good word. That's a really good word, especially as I get older. I'm, I'm thinking, yeah, I just think of what the little, you know, how I thought of older people back, back, back in the day. Yeah. And, and older people that were more jolly and if they were generative and they had something to share, they had right. wisdom or knowledge, yeah. you were more attracted to that than some crusty old fart that, you know, yeah. <laughs> That's right. Um, yeah. Yeah. And, so 
I, I think you just touched on the key word. As we get older, we want to be generative, mm-hmm. not pessimistic. I, I mean, one of the one of the good things about my upbringing was I'm my sister and I were the products of our parents who both lived through the depression and they lived through World War II. And my dad was overseas for three and a half years uh, in World War II. And when I was a kid growing up, on occasion, I would, because I was interested in history like World War II, I'd ask my mom because she was here and she was just a young woman at the time. And I'd say, how was it during the war? And she'd always get really quiet and she'd almost kind of start to cry. And she'd say, well, it was really, really hard because so many dads and brothers and sons never came back. And then then she'd pause for a minute and she said, well, when your dad came home from the war and he was safe and sound, we were just so thrilled and so grateful because then we could got, get married and we could start our family. And they lived through the depression in World War II. And I'm thinking that in my lifetime, I mean, we've, we've had things that, you know, upset our civilization, Vietnam or 9-11 or, you know, financial crisis, but nothing like the depression of World War II. And so I'm thinking, well, they made it through that. Hopefully we can navigate some tough times as they come our way. And God gives grace. Uh, I, I'm sorry, I, I can't hear you. Sorry. How do, how, oh, there you go. I was on mute. Sorry. Um, I was asking, how do we get students to become more resilient so that they can do the hard work? Uh, so that because the, the knowledge that you have, the knowledge base that you have, yeah, I mean, you went through incredible training. You had great mentors, but they pushed you. Yeah. Pushed you to do it right because there's yes. a right way and then there's the sloppy way. That's correct. And if Marjorie had been pushing and you just uh, hit flab and she <laughs> just backed up, you wouldn't have this amazing uh, historical perspective and this amazing training in mind. You would have never graduated. You would have never done that work. And that's true in other uh, areas as well. I'm, I'm immensely grateful for the tough professors I had. Craig Blomberg, for example. Yeah. When I told him I was going to go to California and finish my thesis there. He said, yeah, you won't finish. That's what he said to me. <laughs> yeah. And I, I and could I, have just cried and, and went back to Heather. Sorry. Ooh, said her name. <laughs> oh. I, I could, I could have done that, but I, I didn't. Um, I tried to prove him wrong and I went back to the, uh, the library and lo and behold, you know, I, um, I finished and he pushed me. You know, and, yes. and, and my doctoral advisors, the, the exams I took, I had to take comprehensive exams. So did I at Denver seminary and they were tough and I had to do yeah. a thesis and I had yeah. to do a comprehensive exams uh, during my doctoral work and a, a really tough dissertation. So do you have any ideas about how, how are we just, is it toast or are we, are we going to be able to uh, create more resilience in students so that they do the good work? Well, here's my observation. Uh, Generically across the board, to use your word, I think students are probably more flabby now than they were 30 years ago. But here's the encouraging hopeful sign. In the midst of what we might call kind of generational flab, there are a number of people that continue to stand out and rise to the top and they'll work hard, they'll push themselves, they'll go the extra mile. And I see that like in class, like in church history, 
or I'll see that in a pastoral ministry class and I'll really see it in preaching because I always tell students in preaching, you know, even if you think you're good, you're never going to be good unless you really, really work at it. And I see some of them saying, yeah, this is my thing. I'm going to really work at it. And they press themselves. So I, I think there are always those exceptions out there and we can take some joy in that. I, uh, I'm so grateful that you came on, uh, Scott, to talk about uh, the historical training and uh, perspective. We're grateful for your time. Thanks for coming on. Lucas, thanks so much. This was so fun. God bless you and your work, brother. Thank you.